telling me that there is no possible way that we're going to get through the entire book of Acts this year before Advent. And I've been telling him it's a piece of cake. The truth is it's a whole cake. And he's right. There is, uh, there is just so much here over the next uh, ten chapters, so many things that I want to drill down into. Um, that there's no way to finish up before Advent. And so we're going to take it as it comes. And uh, we'll wrap up probably the first part of the new year, just after a few weeks there. But we're not going to rush it. So with that in mind, we're going to read Acts 18, 1 through 23 this morning. Acts 18, 1 through 23. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll read God's word together. Heavenly Father, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word remains forever. Your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And it, it divides, judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart, cuts between bone and marrow. Lord, your word, by the power of the Spirit, does a work that we desperately need for you. You show us our sin, and then you lead us by the hand of the Savior. And this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I pray this morning that as we read about uh, Paul's ongoing ministry and discipleship and, uh, and new people that were introduced to that have a that had a, uh, an important role in the early church, that as we look at them, we would clearly see Jesus. And so do a work within us, we pray this morning in Christ's name. Amen. All right, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 18, this is God's holy word. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus. And recently, he had come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named uh, Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. And when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. 
And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. And after this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Syncre, he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he went, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. May God write his word upon our hearts. Those of you who are Christians, I, I would make the bold assumption that's probably the vast majority of people here. Um, but I recognize there may be some here who, who are not Christians, who are not believers. But those of you who are, have you ever felt a- as if your walk with Christ was one step forward and then two steps back? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that following Jesus brings more discouragement than delight? If you have felt that way, I want you to know you're not alone. I've been a Christian for 29 years, and I really thought that I would be a lot better at this point in my life. Psalm 90 says that the Lord gives us between 70 and 80 years, which means uh, that I'm easily past the halfway point. And I really thought that things would get easier by now. And I really believed that I would be a lot better than I am. I I thought I would be more patient by now. Not just at this stage of my life, but I've been a Christian for uh, well over uh, 75% of my life. I thought I'd be more patient. I thought I would be more kind. I thought I would be less selfish and less anxious. I, I truly believe that I am growing as a Christian, but there are many days when I feel like I'm growing in the wrong direction. Have you ever felt that way? I mean, I will have good days and bad months. And you see, I don't believe that I'm an anomaly. I don't believe that my feelings and experiences are mine alone. I I believe that a life of following Jesus, which is a life of costly discipleship, I believe it will typically feel this way. One step forward, two steps back. Consider Paul's life. Uh, The book of Acts covers about 30 years of the early church's history, from around 30 A.D. to maybe 62, 63 A.D. And Paul's life overlapped with much of that history. That's why his story uh, really takes up the, the second half of the book of Acts. And so I want you to consider Paul's life. After Paul left Athens... We read in verse 1 that he made his way from Athens to Corinth. He spent, he spent uh, some time in Corinth, but a couple years later, around A.D. 55, he wrote a letter back to the Corinthian church. And so now, now we're piecing together his letters with this history. He was in Corinth. We see him arriving there, staying with Aquila and Priscilla. But two years later, he wrote a letter back to the Corinthian church. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he said, I am the least of all the apostles. I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. 
Seven years later, Paul was in Rome, and he wrote a letter to the, to the church in Ephesus. And in Ephesians 3.8, he said, I am the very least of all the saints. 18 to 24 months before he was executed, he wrote a letter to his, t- his protege, Timothy, right near the end of his life. And in that letter, he said, Christ Jesus came to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And, and so I want, you to th- I want you to think about this, this uh, timeline. Midway through Paul's ministry, a couple years after his arrival in Corinth, midway through Paul's ministry, he said, I- I'm the worst of the apostles. In fact, I'm not really even worthy to be called an apostle. But you can say, Paul, at least you're an apostle. That's not bad. Seven years later, he said, not only am I the most unworthy apostle, I am the very worst of all Christians. And then right near the end of his life, he went from claiming to be the very least of all Christians to being the very worst sinner. Paul followed Jesus for 30 years. But his understanding of discipleship was not about getting better. It was about trusting Jesus more. His understanding of a life with Christ was not bound up in him getting better, although he may have actually been getting better. That wasn't how he viewed discipleship. It was about trusting Jesus more. And that is why over the course of his life and ministry, he can say, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. And then saying, I'm the worst of all Christians. And then saying, I'm the chief sinner. Paul had been a Christian for 20 years when he wrote the book of Romans. And in Romans 7, he said, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing that I hate. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Do you feel that way? that you'll have a good day followed by a bad month, that you'll take one step forward and two steps back, that at this point in your life with following Jesus, you would be a lot better than you actually are. I I thought I would be. And if you feel that way, I want you to know that you're not alone. We can be comforted by the fact that Paul felt that way as well. Friends, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that we are actually getting worse as Christians. I'm saying it feels that way. And, and, and the problem with uh, the, the necessity of having a right view of walking with Christ is that if we make discipleship into a series of growth courses or into a sin management project or graduating to the next level of following Jesus, take your 101, get your basics, and then go to 201, then we'll even be more discouraged because discipleship doesn't work that way. Now, what does any of that have to do with Acts 18? Well, Acts 18 gives us a glimpse into Paul's life, into a a season of his life and how Paul made sense of discipleship in the midst of discouragement. 
It gives us a small glimpse into a season of his life and how he made sense of following Jesus and the costly act of discipleship, even in the midst of discouragement. And I want to draw out a few points this morning, but before I do that, I want to give you the big picture. Paul left Athens. That happens at the end of uh, chapter 17. He made the 50-mile journey west on foot to Corinth. And when he, when he came to Corinth, he stayed there for 18 months. And I, I want you to, this is, so, this is so important, 18 months. From verse 1 to verse 18, a year and a half passes. 18 months and 18 verses. That, that, that changes how you read the book of Acts. Corinth was a, a special place for Paul. Kind of like how Dallas-Fort Worth um, is a special place me so i'm you know it's hard when someone asks you where you're from right when, when you're in your mid-40s and you've traveled and you've you've lived in many places and they ask you where you're from well i'm from duncan oklahoma tulsa is my current home i've lived in alabama but i spent half of my adult life in the dallas fort worth area and so so dfw has a special place in my heart I made some lifelong friendships while I was there. I was just there this past Tuesday and Wednesday and got to see some of those friends. And, and, and so, so Duncan is home, or Duncan's where I'm from. Tulsa's my home. DFW has a special place, and it's kind of like that way for Paul. Paul's from Tarsus, right? That was his home. But he traveled around and, and spent time in many places. But one of the places where he spent the longest amount of time was here in Corinth. Right? M many of the places that he went that we've seen on his missionary journey, now he's in the throes of his second missionary journey, about two-thirds of the way through it. He stays for three months, four months, maybe six months. There's only three places where he stays longer than about six months. That's here in Corinth, Ephesus later on, and then Rome at the end of his life. So Corinth was a special place for Paul. He, he, for a moment of his life, put down roots. And while he was there, he became lifelong friends with this couple named Aquila and Priscilla. You know, they became such good friends that Paul, Paul wrote of her by her nickname. He would often address her by her nickname. Her, her given name was Prisca, which uh, means venerable. That was her, 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 her Latin name, her, her name Prisca. But he would often write of her in the diminutive sense. He loved this couple. He was close to this couple. His time in Corinth was special to him. And in 18 months, he forged a lifetime of memories. And I want you to put yourself in Paul's shoes for a moment. When he left Athens, I believe he left discouraged. When he left Athens, I believe he was discouraged. I told you last week that he met the Athenians on their turf. He learned their stories. He spoke in their language. But we're told in verse 32 of chapter 17 that they mocked him. That they mocked him. And, and only a small number of people believed, and we know that because of the way Luke records it. So throughout the book of Acts, I don't know if you've picked up on this, but, but perhaps you will now. We don't actually see this, these phrases much more in the book of Acts. But uh, Acts up to this point, we've heard these common reoccurring phrases, phrases like many were added to their numbers. You remember hearing that? And the Lord multiplied them greatly, and a great many believed. 
And each of those phrases, when we hear it, is a way of addressing the exponential growth of the gospel. Whether it was Peter preaching, or Stephen preaching, or now Paul preaching, many believed, many were converted. The Lord was adding greatly to their number. But what do we see in chapter 17, verse 34? But some, just some, not many, not a great multitude, some men believed and joined. Some believed, but many mocked. One step forward and two steps back. He meets them on their turf. He learns their stories and speaks their language, but it doesn't yield the fruit that he desires. And then he makes the 50-mile journey westward to Corinth, and what happens in verse 6? He's opposed and reviled. So insult is added to injury. He doesn't, he doesn't see the success that he desires in Athens. Not many people believed the message. Well, I'll go somewhere else. Not long after he's there, he's mocked and he's reviled. Now, I don't know about you, but I think if I, were, if I were facing a similar situation, I would be incredibly discouraged. Trying to be obedient, trying to be faithful, follow the Lord, minister to others. But what I want you to understand is that it's in the midst of discouragement where discipleship flourishes. It's actually in the midst of discouragement where, where discipleship flourishes. Discipleship is nothing more than following Jesus and growing more like him by trusting more in him. Let me say that again. When, when uh, Jason and others are currently teaching a, a series on discipleship, and there's, there's many ways that we can define discipleship, the Bible doesn't actually define it for us, but what we see is that discipleship is, is following Jesus and growing more like him by trusting more in him. We become more like Jesus by trusting more in Jesus. And discipleship happens in the context of relationship. And so where I want to spend the rest of our time is drawing out uh, how what discipleship looks like. How we go about engaging in discipleship as we go about living life. Whether, whether we're ministering to others or being ministered to. And so in this passage, we see three in, in the 18, 1 through 23. Three types of relationships. And each of these relationships gives us a distinct context for discipleship. And so first, I want to consider discipleship in friendship. Have you ever heard the term friendship evangelism? Um, it's friendship evangelism, it, it sort of was popular back in the late 80s, early 90s. It kind of came on the heels when uh, programs like EE stopped being in vogue and what took their place in many, many churches was a concept called friendship evangelism. And it's an approach to evangelism that encourages believers to befriend people as a context for evangelism. Be befriend people as a context for evangelism, for sharing the gospel. And I am firmly convinced that evangelism best happens in the context of relationship. The people that I have had the privilege of leading to Christ, every single one of them have been in, in the context of some degree of relationship. Meaning I never met some random stranger on the street or standing in line at Starbucks and led that person to the Lord. Every person that I've led to the Lord 
has been in the context of some relationship. I had some relationship with him. I, I'm not saying that God cannot or does not use other means. He, he surely does. But he seems to work most faithfully when, when we talk about matters of life and faith with people that we have some sort of established relationship. And yet I want you to, I want you to understand that we, we mustn't treat friendship as a means to an end. That's my one objection to the concept of friendship evangelism. Is if we're not careful, it turns people into projects. We don't befriend people just so that we can set the gospel hook. That's called the bait and switch. We don't do that. We don't just make friends with people so that we can, so that we can share Jesus with them. We befriend people because, because we actually want to establish friendship, genuine friendship. And in the context of that friendship, as the Lord allows, we share, we share the gospel with them. And in the same way, at least in a similar way, discipleship, growing to be more like Jesus by trusting more in Jesus, happens in the context of relationship. Not a false friendship based upon the pretense of helping a person become a better version of themselves. But truly befriending someone, pointing them to Jesus. And there's a friendship that we're introduced to that stands out in this passage, and it's the friendship between Paul and Aquila and Priscilla. Over 18 months, they became lifelong friends, and their friendship provided um, a context for discipleship. And so notice the first three verses here in 18. When Paul arrived in Corinth, he, uh, he soon met Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, they had moved there from Rome. They had been run off from their home by the Emperor Claudius. And they, uh, Aquila and Priscilla opened up their home to Paul. He, he moved in with them. They opened up their tent-making shop to Paul, allowed him to work alongside them. What's going on there? This is life-on-life -life discipleship. They, they lived together. They worshipped together. They worked together. And we learn from Paul's writings elsewhere in the New Testament that together they discipled one another. And so if you're a Christian and you, you live and work with other Christians, God has given you a relationship for discipleship. So, so just imagine with me, you're Paul, you're Aquila, you're Priscilla. What do you talk about day in and day out when you're sewing canvas in the shop? You talk about what it looks like to follow Jesus in your vocation. Right? He lived with them. What do you talk about in the evenings over a meal when you're winding down after a day's work? You talk about what it what it means to serve Jesus, what it means to trust him as an exile who's been, who's been kicked out of their homeland. That's what had happened to Aquila and Priscilla, basically happened to Paul. So, so I, as I was reading this passage, imagined a, a, a conversation this week. I don't think it's far-fetched. It is conjecture, but just imagine this. After they've worked a long day sewing canvas to make tents, they then wash up, baptize themselves, Go into the kitchen, preparing a meal, sitting down. The relationship is blossoming, uh, blossoming and, uh, and it's growing deeper. And, and imagine Paul saying, can, can I share something with you? This hasn't exactly turned out like I thought it would. 
I, I thought I'd be a better apostle by now. I, I thought my time in Athens would have yielded more fruit. I'm tired. I'm a wee bit discouraged. Can you imagine Aquila and Priscilla in the context of discipling Paul saying to him, you know, we felt the same way, Paul, when Claudius forced us from our home in Rome. But here's how God's been faithful to us. And let us encourage you with how God has ministered to us. That's discipleship. It's following Jesus and growing to be more like him by learning to trust more in him. And it often happens in the context of genuine friendship where we simply live life together and point one another to Jesus. You know, I have many, many friendships that have helped me follow Jesus more faithfully. Many friendships that have pointed me to Jesus. I'll, I'll share with you one. When I was ordained in Gulf Coast Presbytery, there was another, another guy named Tim who was ordained at the same time. So we, we came up at the same time, and I was serving at a church in Alabama, and he was serving at a church across the border in Florida. And, and we forged a friendship together that remains thick to this day. And God's taken us different ways. He's now pastoring in Atlanta, and of course I'm here in Tulsa. Um, but we still talk together regularly. Many years at General Assembly, we will share a room together. We will call one another or text one another. When we're together, we often smoke a cigar and we talk about life and ministry. We don't have any sort of course material that we work through. Right? We don't have any sort of curriculum that we, that we engage in. We disciple one another by pointing one another to Jesus, whether it's over a text, a phone call, or in a hotel room we see each other once a year. Ask Jason sometime about it's a beautiful thing, this group of friends that he made in seminary. They're his best friends, a group of guys that are scattered all across the United States. And I, I doubt that any of them would call what they have a discipleship relationship. But that's what it is. That, that's what they do. They encourage one another. They sharpen one another by pointing one another to Jesus. And so discipleship first happens in the context of friendship. When one Christian befriends another Christian and together they point one another to Jesus in order to be more like him. Let me give you a second type of discipleship relationship and it's discipleship in mentoring. When, when many people think of discipleship, this is what they think of. In fact, I, I was told in college that this is, only, is the only true way to go about discipleship. That what you're supposed to do is you, you find a young Christian to mentor, and then you open up the fire hydrant on them and tell them everything you know about the Bible. Now, I've got a couple of problems with that. One, I, I don't think it's true that that is what discipleship is. The Bible never indicates that. And second, I would say it conveys a very limited understanding of discipleship. Discipleship, again, is following Jesus and growing to be more like him by learning to trust more in him. And sometimes that requires content, but many times it requires presence. If we make discipleship all about content, I think we've missed the biblical understanding of discipleship. So there's a relationship that, we're, that we see here that's, 
that's very clear between Paul and Timothy. And sometimes, you know, we call Timothy Paul's protege. I called him that earlier in the sermon. Sometimes we, we may use the phrase that, that Paul mentored Timothy. That's fine to say that. It's true enough. But the Bible never uses either of those terms. When Paul spoke of Timothy, he said, my true child in the faith, my, my beloved son. So when I talk about discipleship in mentoring, I'm talking about something like a parent-child relationship. Those of you who are parents, how do you help your children grow? It's not a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer it out loud, but answer it in your head. If you're a parent, how do you help your children grow? Do you take them through a 52-week study, or do you simply take them with you? There's, there's a place for formal training in the context of discipleship. There certainly is. Kimbo and I, um, our two oldest boys, as they were um, younger, we took them through catechism material and, and uh, studies to become communing members but I would venture to say, and I, I think if you were to ask them, they would say, where they've learned to trust Jesus more is not, by, is not by some material that we took them through, but by simply living alongside of us and us trying to be intentional of pointing them to Jesus. So the passage doesn't tell us. Paul left Athens, he came to Corinth. Sometime later, Silas and Timothy joined him. We're not told how much time elapsed, but a lot of scholars believe that, that uh, it was just a few months. So what that means is that Timothy and Paul were there in Corinth, working together, ministering alongside one another for well over a year. How, how do you think Timothy learned to preach? Did did Paul whip out Christ Center preaching by Brian Chapel and walking through the fallen condition focus and the central idea of the text? No, he watched him by being with him. Discipleship occurred in life. How do you think Paul learned to, or Timothy learned to pastor people? By walking with Paul and watching him. How do you think Timothy learned to baptize people? Listen, there's a fine art to pouring water on someone's head. Not anyone can do it. He learned by walking with Paul and watching Paul. Paul discipled him. And it's implied in the text, and I say, I say implied because it's, made, it's implicit, but it's made explicit in Paul's epistles that Paul mentored Timothy during this season, well over a year there in Corinth, by simply taking him with him and being present. It wasn't as much about content as it was about presence. And some of you have children and that's a God-given relationship for discipleship. You say, who am I called to disciple? Well, God's given you someone to disciple, your kids. Some of you do not have children. But, but perhaps God has put someone in your life that occupies the space like a child, like Timothy was to Paul. In either case, what do you do? You, you live. You live life together, and you point them to Jesus. And many times, I'm so thankful when this happens, God will often turn something uh, from like a parent-child relationship into a friendship. Seen it with my wife and the lady who uh, mentored her when she was a teenager, and now uh, Kimbo, you know, she has a daughter, um, grown daughter, and that relationship went from something like a parent-child to a friendship. But the goal is always the same. 
It's to grow more like Jesus by trusting more in Jesus. And so we point one another to Jesus. Let me give you a final thought. After a year and a half, Paul left Corinth. He set sail for Syria. We're told that his travels took him to Ephesus, Caesarea, Antioch, and Galatia. And our passage this morning ends by telling us that he went from one place to the next, strengthening the disciples. So the first time around, he made disciples. The second time around, he strengthened those disciples. And I believe this shows us that sometimes God gives us discipleship in doses. Sometimes, God will bring along a relationship for a season. Sometimes, God will bring along a relationship just for a season. It's not a lifelong friendship like Paul had with Aquila and Priscilla. It's not a parent-child relationship like Paul had with Timothy. It's a relationship for a particular purpose in a particular season. Has God given you something like that? A relationship for a particular purpose in a particular season in order to grow more like him by pointing that person to him. So a few years ago, I'll end with a story where I think I saw this most clearly. A few years ago, I, uh, I met a man at McNelly's named Gene. Gene was a hot mess. He was, a, he was a lapsed Catholic, and by that, what I mean is that he had been baptized in the Catholic Church, but he hadn't darkened the doors of any church for years. And, uh, and I just began to talk to Gene. He looked lonely, and so I saddled up next to him and began talking to him, and, 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 a, and a friendship of some sorts formed. And, and so then we made it a standing appointment. We would meet every Monday afternoon. We met for over a year, almost a year. And probably about the fourth or fifth week, I learned that Gene's wife had kicked him out of the house because he was, uh, at that time, currently having an affair with a co-worker. So Gene's life was a mess. So I just listened. Sometimes in the course of conversation, he would tell me about what's going on with him, and sometimes I would tell him, hey, there's a better life out there. You'd realize that. Sometimes I would, I would tell him about my struggles as a father and a husband. I tried to be intentional about this. I would get up from my bar stool. I would pay the tab. I would tell him that I was going home to my wife and that he should consider doing the same. Now, now some, some may think that I was engaging in friendship evangelism. Yeah, I, I thought of it as discipleship because I believe they're really one and the same. Evangelism is telling the lost about Jesus. Discipleship is telling the saved about Jesus. I wanted Gene to follow Jesus and to grow more like him by trusting in him, whether he had ever done that initially or whether he would do it then. I wanted Jesus to turn, or Gene to turn to Jesus. And so the, the last time that we met one another at McNelly's, it was a Wednesday, not a Monday, he called me up and he said, I need you to come up here, it's urgent. So when I got there, he told me that he needed moral support because the gal that he'd been having an affair with was about to show up there at McNelly's and he was going to break it off and try to patch things up with his wife. And so he wanted me there for moral support. So I want you to imagine this scene. Here I am, <laughs> right? Not, no, no joke. Here I am at McNelly's and I'm sitting on one bar stool and this soon-to-be jilted lover is sitting on a bar stool, one removed, and Gene sitting between us, his legs shaking, me putting my hand on his leg, and him breaking off this affair and her saying all kinds of filthy things and me just praying that Gene makes it out of this alive. 
I was honored to, to, for Gene to call me. Hey, will you call me and sit with me? Just, just sit with me. Be with me while I do the right thing. So every once in a while, I'll still message him, still text him. But that was a relationship for a particular purpose in a particular season, right? Just, just for a season. It was, it was discipleship in doses, hour and a half on Monday afternoons. And if I'm honest, there's, there's times when I'm discouraged about that. When I'm discouraged about that whole thing with Gene. Why couldn't I seal the deal? I'm a pastor. Why couldn't I get him to fall on his face there in McNelly's and repent? Why couldn't I ever get him to at least come to church with me? Even though I invited him countless times. Sometimes I feel like that whole time was a failure. And what I want you to understand is the discipleship happened in the midst of discouragement. It happened. It happened. That, that sometimes when we feel like we're taking one step forward and two steps back, whether it's our own sin or whether it's the, the struggles that come with not seeing God at work the way we'd like to see him at work, that God is at work. He is at work. That discipleship does happen in the midst of discouragements. And just like we do with evangelism, we trust God for the outcome. We do so with discipleship. We trust God for the outcome, realizing that making disciples is ultimately on his shoulders, not ours. And so we build relationships and we point one another to Jesus. And we trust God to grow more like him. Let's do that now. Father, we trust you that you... Uh, are going to complete this good work that you started. That, that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it, bring it to completion at the day of our Lord. And so we will um, fully and finally look like Jesus. We will not struggle with uh, sin and suffering and discouragement. And the answer will always be at some point, yes and amen. But until that time, it's, it, it does feel as believers as if we take a step forward, a step back, have a good day followed by a bad month. That we do our best and it doesn't yield the results that we want. And sometimes it's our own sin that discourages us and sometimes it's the sin and brokenness of the world or those that you've given to us in this life. But I pray that we would understand that growing like Jesus, it happens right there. That's, that's the season. That's the time. And so let us not take our friendships for granted. Maybe that's making new friends with someone. Or maybe it's just using the friendships that we have um, in more intentionally. Be more thoughtful about encouraging those that you've put in our life. Father, let us understand that... Um, that sometimes discipleship happens when we least expect it. Happens over the dinner table, the coffee shop and the pub. It happens when we're sowing tents. That Lord, these, these are the relationships and the context that you've given us to grow more like you. And so that we wouldn't get discouraged, overly discouraged and think that we have to falsely follow some artificial plan, but that we would simply live for you, enjoy you, make you known. But even that's a, even that's a tough task. It's a big ask. 
And so, Lord, would your spirit be at work within us? Would you work within us to help us grow, to help us more clearly see Jesus? Because even then, we can't muster up the strength on our own. And so, Lord, help us, help us to grow more like him. And we'll give you the praise and honor when you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand?